All right, so thank you guys all for being here. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, tonight, specifically, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Um, we're going to go through the first 11 verses. We're going to talk about the first two of the seven churches that this letter was addressed to. So tonight, specifically, we're going to be talking about Ephesus and Smyrna. Um, and these churches show us some really important lessons about not only church in general and local churches, but also our own personal walk with Christ. And so what I want to do is I want to open with this quote from James Hamilton in his commentary on Revelation, where he kind of breaks down like, hey, this is, this is the mindset that we should have going into this. And he's talking about local churches and what, what they need and what's important here. And he says, the greatest need of a local church is not to be more impressive by worldly standards of measurement. So it's not to have more people or more things or a better show. The greatest need of a local church is to be more faithful to Jesus and to hold fast to the gospel and to live lives that are pleasing to him. So the first thing right off the bat that I want to say here is that Revelation may have been written to seven churches, but it is intended for all churches. It's something that was intended for the universal church. It was meant for all churches all the time. And so today we're going to be breaking down two of the churches that it was written to specifically. But more importantly, this is things that apply to all of us as Christians, as believers, as parts of the universal church. So here's a thing to take note of here is that the letters to the seven churches. So this whole section that we're about to go through over the next few weeks are preceded by the overwhelming glory of Christ that's described in Revelation chapter one, where it's given, it gives this description of him and it's overwhelming all that John feels when he sees him and this incredible glory of Christ. So it starts off with this, with the glory of Christ is described there, but then after it's, it's, um, it's followed by the power and mercy of God and these and these huge images that come out and this onrush of images described in chapters four through 22. So we see the letters to the churches are surrounded by both these truths about God and who he is and how powerful he is and how mighty he is, but more importantly, how much he loves us and how close he is to us. And that was what frames these letters to the churches. This is what frames this entire book and showing us that God is this amazing and holy and righteous God who has dominion over all things, who is over all things, who controls all things and who yet still loves us and is close to us and is there for us in our time of need. Also, I want to point out that these churches are addressed in order they're addressed in on purpose. So essentially, if you left Patmos and followed a direct route, you would hit all of these churches in that order. Um, that means that these churches were not just meant to be sites that were written to, but they were meant to serve as distribution centers to all the churches around them. So like all the Christians in the cities that surrounded these areas, like these were basically meant to be hubs so that these letters could be distributed to all these churches around so that everybody could get a hold of the letter of this revelation. It means that this book was always meant to be written, to be read by a wider audience in just these seven churches. Also, as we get into these letters, try to think of all of these as if they're just many epistles, as if they're just many versions of like Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians. They're just very, very small versions of that because they each start with a short greeting, um, a diagnosis and or command given to these churches and a short benediction. And so they all follow this similar pattern. They all address issues at this church and they're all given to us directly by Christ. So now let's talk first about the church at Ephesus. So in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we're going to start with the first seven verses here. But starting in verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So basically, this, this first letter here is already starting to kind of highlight the things that we're supposed to see. See, this letter to the church of Ephesus highlights for us the danger of forsaking the greatest commandment that Christ ever gave us. This is where revelation becomes deeply personal for many people, because it suddenly starts to address something that a lot of us have felt before. But first, before we get into what they did wrong, let's highlight what they did right. So this church was commended for their doctrinal vigilance and their steadfastness in the faith. They were praised by Jesus himself, which is a big deal. Like Jesus is saying to them, he's like, hey, I want to take a moment to praise you for their diligence and for their discernment and for their determination. These are all essential qualities of a healthy church. Like any healthy church should have these things. Any healthy church should be fighting against heresy. Any healthy church should be should have discernment and should be determined to do all things that have been commanded of them. And these are all qualities of a healthy church because God hates false teaching. And this may seem extreme, but this is exactly what it says here in verse 6 when Jesus is addressing the Nicolaitans. He says, hey, I hate their works. I hate them. However, the problem with this church is that in all of their zeal for righteousness, they've completely forgotten and forsaken the single greatest reason to be so diligent and steadfast, and that's love for God. Our single greatest motivation for anything that we do should always be love for God, above all else. See, the Ephesians were forsaking the first and greatest commandment in their pursuit of truth and being right. All they wanted was to be the, the ones who were right, were to be righteous, was to do things well and to be applauded for it. And in that pursuit, they had forgotten the reason they were supposed to do it in the first place. But despite all of this, look at the careful way that Jesus addresses them, because I think this is something that we can learn from. Like, I think we can learn how to handle disagreements and how to handle these situations better on our own by how Jesus addresses them here. See, when Christ sees an issue with the Ephesians, he doesn't immediately destroy them. He doesn't taunt them. He doesn't come down hard on them. He's not like, how dare you say and think these things? He doesn't question. He doesn't call into question whether or not they're Christians. Instead, he comes to them and first he affirms the positive aspects of the church before dealing with the issue. In fact, his commentary on Revelation, speaking specifically about this, Joel Beek says, if you can't see any of God's grace in another person, you may have the wrong attitude. If Jesus, the primary person who's being offended here, the primary person who's being sinned against, if he can look at them and find the positive things to talk about in the Ephesians, then we can find positive things in those that we disagree with. And that's something important to remember is that this is Christ showing his love for them. That being said, 
We cannot neglect to remove heresy from our churches. We cannot neglect to remove false teaching from our churches. And this is also important because when it came to the Christians who had lost their love for God, look at this. When it came to the Christians who had lost their love for God, who had, who had completely forsaken the greatest commandment, God draws near to them to bring them back to repentance. He comes to them and he says, hey, these are the things that you have done well. He comes to them. He addresses himself as the one who walks among the lampstands, as the one who is close to his churches and is near to his people and cares for them. And he says, hey, I want you to know I love you and I care for you, but I need you to come back to me. You need to repent of this or I will have to remove you. But when he came to the Nicolaitans, who taught, who taught that they had been given a superior light, especially they had been teaching people like, hey, we've been given a superior Christianity, so we can commit idolatry and immorality, and it's not a sin for us. When it came to them and their false teaching, he didn't come near to them and say, hey, I love you. Please come to salvation. Please come to this. And no, he said, hey, I hate them and their works. We serve a God of gentleness and compassion who loves us deeply, but never let it be said that we serve a God who is soft and who is not hard on sin. And I think this also puts things into perspective for us about how we should feel to the, about those who mishandle the Bible and mislead in the name of God. So to bring this down to a really practical and personal level, imagine if the person that you love most in this world, the person that you care about the most, the person that you want to make happiest, came to you and said, hey, I just, I just don't feel like you love me the way that you used to. Like, I'm just not seeing it anymore in your actions. It's not in the way that you talk to me. That's a hard thing to hear. And that's something that would be difficult for any of us. And it's a wake-up call to be like, well, I need to do things differently because I need them to know that I love them. Maybe I don't love them like I used to, and that needs to change. I need to do something about this. But then take that on an, on an infinitely greater scale because the one who is most worthy of our love and grace and mercy is coming to them and he is saying like, hey, I'm the one who is most worthy of this love and yet you are not loving me anymore. I think oftentimes we come into our relationship with God and we just kind of expect that things are going to get cold. We just kind of expect that things are not going to be as good. We expect that eventually at some point our love for him is going to wane. But what if instead we worked on keeping that same love for him in the first place? So there, there are really, I think, three practical things that we learn from the church in Ephesus, three things that are important for us to take away from this. The first thing is that we cannot tolerate false teaching. We cannot tolerate false teaching. When it comes to false teachers, we, we cannot have fellowship with them. We cannot tolerate them. We cannot allow them to have influence over people that we love and care about. And, and he makes that really clear here because I've heard so many churches go through this passage before and be like, see, we shouldn't be so, so hard on the false teaching. Instead, we have to focus on love. And Jesus is like, no, this isn't an either or thing. Like you need both. He says, hey, it is good that you have not allowed false teaching. It is good that you have had discernment, that you have been doctrinally sound. These things are good. The problem is, is that you haven't also loved me. Your motivations for doing this were wrong. It's not what they were doing that was wrong, but why they were doing it. We should hate false teaching because we love God. In the same way that I would be angry if someone was spreading lies about my wife, if someone was talking bad about Katie, that would make me angry. And we should feel the same way when people do that with God. 
So first, we cannot tolerate false teaching. Second, we have got to remember our love for God. We've got to remember our love for God. Have you ever looked at a picture of yourself from like a year ago or from two years ago? You were like, wow, I I look a lot different. Like I've clearly gotten older. Things have changed about me. That's because we don't notice ourselves changing while it happens. We all know this. It's only in looking back and remembering who we were before that we can see the change that has gotten us to now. In the same way, however, we don't notice ourselves starting to drift away from God when that happens. We don't notice that change happening in our hearts when it's happening. It's something that happens over time. So that means that we need to follow the advice given to the Ephesians in verse 5, where God says, hey, remember who you were before you fell. Remember that love that you had for me and go back to that. For us, it means every single day we have to remember where we started when we started to follow God. We have to remember what we've been saved from, like what he has done for us. Remember the gospel every single day, but we also need to remember that this is who I was when I started to love God. This is who I was when I started to follow God. And, and go back to that joy and that zeal that we had back then. I'm not saying that we need to be running around trying to chase that feeling that we had, but I am saying that we need to remember why we followed God in the first place, why we loved him in the first place. We have to remember and constantly remind ourselves what we have been saved from and what we've been saved for. Finally, we've got to live in repentance. We've got to live in repentance. Here's the deal. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It's not something that just happens when we're saved, when when we're regenerate. It's a lifetime of dying to ourselves and humbling ourselves before God. This is something that requires a lot of self-evaluation on our part. It requires a lot of humility on our part. It requires us being able to say, hey, my, my harboring bitterness today towards someone, if I am, then I need to repent. My struggling to love God today, if I am, then I need to repent. My slowly allowing sin to creep back into my heart, to creep back into my life and into my habits. If so, then I need to repent. Live with an attitude of repentance every single day. Again, in verse 5 here, we see that Jesus is telling them, like, hey, remember who you were and then repent of this. And don't just repent one time. Like, don't just, don't just repent of, your, of not loving God, but then stay in repentance. Live that out every single day. Walk in repentance and humility. And I love the, the way he ends here in verse 7. By proving that this is not just a message for the Ephesians, but this is a message for everyone. Because in verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He's like, he's like, if you are hearing this, if you are able to hear these things, then this is for you. This is for all of the churches. This is for anyone who feels like they're starting to lose their love for God or anyone who looks back and realizes that it's already happened. This is important for us because I think a lot of times, most of us have probably been there at some point. We've looked back and been like, I do not love God like I used to. And that's not just a part of our walk of Christ. That's something that needs to be combated. That's something that needs to be fought for at all costs. 
So now let's look at the letter to the Church of Smyrna. So picking up in verse 8, we see now the, the much shorter letter to the, to the Church of Smyrna, where it says, And to the angel of the Church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So, first of all, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two churches here that are not given a criticism. Like, they're not given, they're not given a rebuke. Instead, they're both given a warning and an exhortation. And here specifically in Smyrna, they're giving a warning and an expectation for the suffering that they're about to endure. So, let me start by saying that this letter is specifically addressed to anyone who's going through suffering, whether it be like, physical or spiritual or emotional or mental, like this letter is for people who are suffering. But I want you guys to notice how Jesus introduces himself here. First and foremost, he's reminding Smyrna that he is the one who comes before all. He's the first and the last, and he is their savior and redeemer. See, we have nothing to fear on this earth because of what Christ has done for us. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have nothing to fear on this earth. The greatest thing that we could have feared has already been conquered. Even if faced with death, those in this church are going to experience eternal life. No matter what happens, like what's the worst that could possibly happen to them? Because the worst thing that could have happened, death, it still brings them to eternal life in Christ, to a paradise that is everlasting. Unlike the church of Laodicea that we'll talk about later, that church is described as wealthy. They're a church that has a lot of money, that has a lot of things, has a lot, but, but Christ describes them as spiritually bankrupt. But Smyrna was a much smaller, more poor church. But Jesus describes them as rich, and this is because of the faithfulness that they have in the Spirit. He's like, you guys have far more than you need physically. You have everything that you could need because you have it spiritually, because you are rich in the Spirit, and because when you die, there are treasures waiting for you in heaven. See, they were being persecuted heavily by the Jews, which is basically the backdrop for the entire New Testament. But what's interesting here is how Jesus refers to them in verse 9. Because it's, not, it's, it's kind of as if Jesus is giving us commentary on everything that's been happening the rest of the New Testament. Because in the rest of the New Testament, we've seen the Jews go after the Christians over and over again and persecute them and kill them and lock them up and send them off to Rome to be killed. And so here, Jesus is like, no, 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 these they call themselves Jews, but that's not who they are. They don't have any rights to that title. They can't call themselves that because that's not who they are anymore. See, it's funny because the Jews who are likely in, like, in league with the Roman government here, you know, they keep sending people off to the Roman government to be killed, hate those who are, in fact, the true Israel, hate those who have actually become a part of the family of God. And that's the ironic thing about it is that God is like, no, you guys have been faithful in the face of so many things. However, it's about to get a lot harder for you. Notice what he says about what they're about to face. So they've already been facing persecution. They've already been facing this trouble. The, 
the church, the, the temple, the Jews, all these people have been coming after them. But now Jesus is saying, hey, you're about to go through 10 days of hell. And if you withstand that, you will receive the crown of life. The trial that they're about to go through will be brief. However, he tells them to endure to the point of death, meaning that they're probably about to endure 10 days of jail and then be killed. A lot of them are about to be killed. He's like, I need you to understand that you're not just about to go through a trial, but you're about to go through a trial that is going to suck and it's going to be difficult and a lot of you are not going to survive it. And yet he says that they, he's essentially telling them that they have every single reason to rejoice because their Savior and Redeemer is promising them life far greater than anything they could experience here on earth. See, that's the great thing about this letter is that it's, it reminds us that with this church, that no matter what kind of suffering we face, God is still present with us and eternity is still good. God is still present and eternity is still good. We always have those two promises to fall back on. We can always fall back on the promise that God is with us. He is present. He walks among the lampstands. He is the, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. And He is our Redeemer and Savior. And He is present with us in all things. But also we can look at the fact that eternity is always good. It is always better than anything we could experience here on earth. And it is always waiting for those of us who persevere to the end. It's exactly the message that God is giving them here, that Jesus is speaking to him. He's like, guys, if you withstand this, there is something far greater for you waiting. Yes, this is going to be hard and it's going to suck. Suffering is never fun. But we no longer have to fear our greatest threat because of what Christ has done for us. The only thing that we could possibly have to fear, death has already been taken from us in Christ. He's like, you don't have to fear the second death. You don't have to fear dying and then dying for eternity because that, is, that battle has already been won for you and everything ahead of you is good and everything ahead of you is going to be better. See, in both of these churches, we see parts of our own lives and that's very intentional. Every single one of these churches was a real church in a real place, like facing real persecution and real problems. And yet every single one of these churches is able to represent us in some way. See, we all at times struggle to love God like we should. We all do things for the wrong reasons. We all experience suffering as part of the life of a believer. And we all need to be reminded that God is sovereign above all things and that he is with us and that he loves us. That's what makes Revelation so important and so relevant to us even today. And as we move into our discussion time, I want you guys to take some time to think about where you really need to apply the truths that we talked about tonight in your life. Like where, where is it that maybe you've been suffering and you know that you need Christ. You need to rely on him more. Where is it maybe that you've been struggling and you know that you need to love God more? And how is it that you can apply the truth of these churches to your life? So now let's pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done in our life, for the constant reminder that you've given us in your word that you are good and you are holy and that you are here with us in every situation, in all things. God, help us to be people who love you and who love you deeply, who love you above all else. Help us to be people who do things out of love for you and not just out of selfish ambition and not just out of trying to be righteous. 
God, help us to be people who in our suffering look to you for our strength and for our hope. Help us be people who look to eternity. Help us live every single day doing all things to glorify you. I pray that you'd be with this discussion time and help us to glorify you in everything that we say and do. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.